Hello and welcome to Office Hours with EAB. Today's episode was recorded in January during a virtual book discussion organized for EAB employees and featuring noted author Nathan D. Graw. Dr. Graw is probably best known for his 2018 book, Demographics and the Demand for Higher Education, a book that forced a lot of admissions leaders to sit up and take notice of the looming demographic shift that will leave colleges competing for a rapidly shrinking population of 18-year-old high school graduates by the mid-2020s. In this special one-hour episode, Dr. Graw talks about his new book, The Agile College, that examines ways colleges are adapting to survive amidst threats, demographic and otherwise. Thanks again for listening and enjoy. I am delighted, delighted this morning to have Dr. Nathan Graw with us to discuss his new book, The Agile College, Hot Off the Presses. Um, Welcome, Nathan. Thank you so much. Uh, Let me just provide a brief introduction for those of you who are less familiar with Dr. Graw's work. He is the Ada M. Harrison Distinguished Teaching Professor of the Social Sciences at Carleton College, where he served on the faculty since 99. He earned his bachelor's from St. Olaf College and his master's and PhD in economics from the University of Chicago. His work as a labor economist studies the connections between family background and educational and labor market outcomes. And his 2018 book, Demographics and the Demand for Higher Education was what I would call a blockbuster for higher ed. Um, and I think I personally gave out at least 50 copies to presidents that, that um, I work with. And I know many of you have, as I do, uh, a dog-eared highlighted copy next to your bed. Um, in a follow-up project, the Agile College, which we're gonna discuss today, Um, Nathan draws on interviews from higher ed leaders to provide examples of how proactive institutions are grappling with demographic change. Um, Nathan, I'd love to start by understanding what prompted you or what made you feel like you needed to do a refresh here so soon after that first blockbuster book. Yeah, so the the second book starts with an updating of of the forecast. And there's some value in in asking, hey, can we push a little further into the 2030s? Because obviously... We're now getting very close to that time period where we do see the demographic uh, fertility effects in the present. And then we want to know, okay, what what happens next? But I think mostly the motivation came from the the two-thirds of the book that follows that has to do with how institutions are responding. Um, I was talking to people like uh, EAB folks and uh, college administrators all over the country about how they were uh, adapting. And I think the good news is um, my exercise, my, my project is really a projection exercise. It's an if-then exercise. Right. If people continue doing what we've been doing, both on the higher ed side and also on the side of families, what happens next? Um, in some sense, that, that shouldn't be a terribly interesting exercise in, in the sense that we should not anticipate that people will just do the same things. In fact, we should hope that they wouldn't. It gives you a little bit of a wake-up call to see that demographics are shifting in ways right. that will change the size of the pools and the composition of the pools. But then what do you want to do about it? And I think I, I saw a, um, a news story a couple of years ago on the East Coast where someone was quoted as saying, you know, in the mid-2020s, we're starting to call that that change the apocalypse. And I thought, wow, that's a really, really unhelpful <laughs> analogy. Um, and in fact, it was, uh, Ed, Ed Bennett had a, uh, a blog post where he provided a very different analogy. He pointed to Tlaib's work on anti-fragility. That's right. Um, where, you know, stress can be, um, it, it can be breaking, right? I mean, systems can break under stress, but some systems like our bodies, he pointed out in the context of a workout, get stronger under stress. And he, he simply asked, is it possible that higher ed is or can be an anti-fragile system. And what I'm seeing across the country is uh, good evidence that the answer may well be yes, that institutions are adapting. And those institutions that are willing to, in essence, take on that second analogy, have a much, much better chance to navigate this time, which is gonna be a challenging time. And I, I don't want to be a Pollyanna, but on the other hand, um, you know, we, we do have a lot to say about how will our future yes. work. Do we want to open our minds to a different definition of who our students are? Do we want to reconsider uh, which retention initiatives are just, oh, too expensive, we couldn't possibly do that versus, no, these are essential to our, our financial viability. And so, you know, the project is in essence um, an effort to collect stories to begin conversations. Every campus has its own context. There's 
There's no off-the-shelf program, as you all know so well, that you can just say, oh, you know, here, Institution X did this, you do the same thing. Right. But hopefully, by throwing all these examples on the table, we can start conversations on campuses about, okay, which of these things may, with some tweaking, fit your context? And how is it best for you to go forward? Rather than saying it's the apocalypse, in which case we should all just go home, be with family members, and, um, you know, there's nothing to do for the apocalypse. That's, right. that's just not I'm under the happy. table or going exactly. to <laughs> That's right. And I, I think... Um, I think your first book was absolutely activating, um, but there was a sense that this was happening to us rather yeah. than um, what agency do we have and what strategies do we need to be taking. So uh, I'm thrilled that you have written The Agile College. Um, Ed and I have talked about that anti-fragile concept a lot. and. You know, I don't think individual institutions are necessarily anti-fragile, but I do think as a system, higher ed can be anti-fragile. So, um, you know, we will see some institutions uh, go away. I think um, there is oversupply in the system, um, but as a system, it could be better uh, and it could actually serve students uh, more effectively. So that's- Yeah, I think that's, I think that's an interesting observation. I, I think some institutions I would argue could be anti-fragile and others, yeah. Um, Barbara Brittenham, uh, the now uh, departed president of, uh, is it NESHI, the, the accreditation agency oh, out east, yes, who's yeah. seen up close and personal what this looks like. Yes. Um, I, I was talking to her and I shared Ed's analogy. And I said, what do you make of that? And she said, well, you know, on a car accident, the stresses are just too much. And there's a limit to this anti-fragility yes, yes. concept. And I think that's what you're talking about. Yeah. I think if we think about the car accident, though, all of the engineering of the car is to take that stress and spread it out over time. Um, now, if you have a bad enough accident, there, there's nothing you can do. But for those institutions that are kind of on the edge, I think we could hope that they will adapt, change retention practices, and become stronger versions of themselves, more true to their missions. Yes. And yet, you're right, that there are going to be others where you say, okay, look, we need to be talking about mergers or you know, what, what's the best way forward that might be a radical um, departure from the past. That's right. Um, and I want to come back to that because I, I want to uh, touch on some of the advice that you have for our partner institutions. But let's start with just the basics. What changed in your projections since 2018 and what has remained the same? What, what I could see is that most of it um, is pretty consistent. So your projections right. from 2018 were pretty darn solid. Um, but there were a couple of changes, right? Yeah. So one of the most important things, I think, is... Um, if you look at the original projections for 2029, which was unfortunately the last year yes. of the data, there seems to be something in the headcount in the American Community Survey that's making the um, the original projections more pessimistic than I'm now looking at. Right. Um, now you continue to go down. So, you know, I'm not sure that that gives us a ton of relief, but it gives us some relief, um, particularly if we look out west and in the south. Yes. We continue to see that in the northeast and the Midwest, it's, it's just tough. I mean, there's no way around it. Um, they're already in tough, frankly, in many um, regional areas. Um, some of the things that I did do in the follow-up, because I had questions from uh, people about, well, what about this subgroup or that subgroup, was to divide the data. So for instance, um, while I can't differentiate by institution rank, I can say, well, what about the publics versus the privates? And to be honest, it, it doesn't seem, and I'm not surprised, it doesn't seem like these are different, different paths ahead. The, these are two ships on the same sea. So as the tide rises and falls, they rise and fall together. Mm -hmm. There does seem to be, when I break out the subset of students who are transfer students versus the more persistent ones, yes. um, if you look at their comp the composition of the two-year market and the four-year market, the two-year market, you know, both markets are kind of weaker. Right. But then if you had to focus on kids who are persistent versus transfers, the two-year group seems to be growing in the transfer student, which is, you know, I, I guess... We're happy that there's anything. I mean, it's, it's falling less is a better way to say that. It's it's better to have strength than weakness, I guess. But if if your relative strength is in the group that is less persistent, obviously that raises some additional challenges. Whereas with right. the four-year colleges, it's the reverse, which might take a little of the edge off. Okay, we're we're seeing a decline in the pool, but it's relatively a, a little. The decline is a little less severe in the repeat student, the persistent student who comes back and pays tuition term after term. So those kinds of things also take the edge off. So I would say it's, my work is not inconsistent with what we saw with Witchy's update, that, okay, things look a little bit better than we thought. A bit, right. But you still have to confront, boy, the second half of the 2020s, that pool is shrinking pretty, pretty. Abruptly. And the decline continues now that you've projected even beyond 2029, it's going to continue. Exactly. Um, you know, and so I, 
my forecasts see a bigger bump in the early 2030s. In 2013, 14, we had a bump in births, right. very small. My bump looks bigger than the CDC's bump in births and bigger than the witchy forecast. And so frankly, if I had to put my bet on my bump or witchy's bump, I'd put it on witchy's just because I'm having a hard time understanding quite why we should be that hopeful. But there is a little bit of a repeat, um, but very, very brief in the early 2030s. And then we continue with the declining fertility. Got it. Um, and from what I could gather, there is also um, by segment some slightly better news for the elites in the two years. Is that? Yeah, so slightly better. That's right. I mean, in the two year sector, you're going from a pretty tough story to still a pretty tough story. So that relief, um, you know, every little helps, I guess. Right. Um, in the elite sector, um, what we saw when we only looked through the end of the 2020s was, okay, and then there's a decline. Right. And if we push out further, what we see is, okay, but that updraft of, it's primarily driven by um, parents who have a college degree, right, right. eventually, you know, picks up again. And so we see the, the reversal, and then as they come out of it, they end up, you know, by the end of my forecast, which goes to um, the middle of the 2030s, you see, okay, so they seem to have recovered from their losses. So at the top end, yes, we continue to see um, if people continue to do as they have in the past, which is right. a great, you know, a big if, um, that there's there's some reason for greater hope at the top end. Right. Um, and you started this work before COVID hit. So that's right. I, I want to talk about how that uh, lens may have impacted some of how you would be prognosticating on this now. And I loved Robert Zemsky's um, quote in the, the front of your book about how he envies your demographic dexterity. So we're gonna, we're gonna test that and just um, think about some of the ways that COVID has changed the landscape. Um, and one of them is just that, as we've been telling our partners, it's accelerated a lot of the pressures that you had already projected in 2018. And in particular, those budgetary gaps that they were feeling across the fall have activated them around certain steps that they maybe thought they had until 2023 or 24 to, to start, one of them being academic program um, prioritization. And so you have a lot of schools right now looking at their program offerings um, cutting programs, trying to reduce even tenured faculty ranks. And, and I'd love to hear how you think this may um, help or hurt um, their, their futures. And, and is that the right thing to be doing at this point? Yeah, so I would say, you know, just stepping back a little bit, how does COVID in, impact my work? At, yes. at some level, it breaks it, right? I mean, here we've got this if-then proposition. Yeah. If is predicated on patterns that we saw in 2013 of yes. the traditional age college going continuing. And obviously, in this last year, we saw yes. an enormous break of that. Right. Um, that raises questions about what happens next. And yes. we can talk about that in more detail in a bit. But the bottom line is, okay, this this is outside of the model. Yes. Um, insofar as what's inside the model, uh, work by... Uh, Melissa Kearney and Phil Levine over at Brookings have looked at what do they think might happen to fertility in 2020. And they're saying it, it might cost us another 300 to 500,000 babies. Right. So, okay, in the mid 2030s, gosh, another reckoning coming our way. Um, wow, interesting. Yeah. But if, if we step back and say, okay, so, you know, I think your observation is right that we are looking at uh, scarcity and, and we're yeah. trying to grapple with there just aren't as many students who are are willing and able to come to our campuses right now yes. and in the short run that's forced us to think about things like student success student-centered advising student-centered yes. retention initiatives and those are exactly the same kinds of things that i think have the greatest promise in the longer run and so mm -hmm. i'm kind of hoping that we can leverage this experience you know faculty are doing zoom office hours like i am with you it looks like you might be in your home and it looks like a relatively calm you know, sensible place to work. But some of our experiences on Zoom office hours have seen our students in very different contexts. Absolutely. And it, I think it opens faculty eyes. I think faculty members, because of what we do for a living, tend to focus on the academic development. And so when we see a student struggling, our first thought is, well, maybe we should develop a quantitative skills center. And maybe we should. Mm -hmm. But retention is so much bigger than that. Students bring their whole selves to our campuses. And faculty got a little glimpse into what the whole self means and how uh, different levels of resource support. Um, you know, you see a student who's sharing a bedroom with a sibling and it's a chaotic environment at home. And I know that when we bring them to our campuses, for those of us who are residential, one of the things we do is bring them out of that environment, but we don't 
we can't bring them out of all the pressures that come from an under-resourced background. And just recognizing the holistic nature of advising may help faculty be better partners in the enrollment management work that has to be done over the next 10 years to to maybe rethink. I mean, if my thought is always that, look, they have to stay, they, they have to come up and meet me at my levels of standard academically, and that's the problem. They're not meeting my standards. That's not a very productive beginning to a conversation. If instead we say, these are our students, these are the, the strengths and the weaknesses that they bring to our campus. Now, how do we have to adapt so that they can learn and succeed? That opens up some conversations. And I'm really hoping that this experience of the last year will break free some of those you know, the, the false constraints on that conversation and allow the conversation to open up in a productive way. Well, you're you're speaking our language right now in terms of student success and the the um, the approach that faculty need to to bring to it. And, and what I'm hearing is that there was a silver lining in this COVID environment that opened up faculty eyes to that. Um, for some segments of higher ed, I think it will have very little impact because um, I think attitudes are pretty entrenched, but for others, I do think that it was a pretty uh, remarkable opening of the eyes and understanding that maybe it's not all the students' fault that their readiness to perform wasn't um, completely within their control, right? Yeah, and the other caveat I would say is, I think there's potential here, but that's far from enough, right? Okay, so you open faculty eyes, people are also fatigued. Yeah. Um, I had somebody write me, um, recently and comment on something they'd read of mine and say, look, you're being way too optimistic. I mean, sure, in the context of COVID, faculty, you know, institutions have a gun to their head. Of course, they're going to be open to change. But when we're thinking about things that move a little bit more slowly, like demographic change, people are going to go back to their entrenched, resistant mindset. And that may be true. Um, It certainly will be true if we don't do some serious work to capitalize on this experience of the last year. I don't think the experience of the last year by itself all of a sudden makes faculty, um, you know, easy partners in the enrollment management conversation. We still have work to do, but I think it does give us a little bit. Sensitize them, yeah. Exactly. We have an open door. Now, now we have to walk through it. We have to take advantage of it. It's not going to just happen without work. Um, And I want to come back to that uh, in the context of shared governance, which I think is um, an opportunity, but also can be an obstacle um, for institutions that want to institute dramatic change. Um, Your projections are based on the past as precedent and past behaviors and past predisposition of certain ethnic groups to attach to certain segments of education um, to, um, you know, to basically project forward. You know, one of the things that I've been thinking about a lot is this um, this uh, budget, um, the budget impact, not just on colleges, but on the nation overall, and whether that starts to change some of those predispositions. Like, do Asians suddenly not focus so much on the elites? Perhaps they will continue to focus on them, but perhaps they will broaden the aperture in terms of the consideration set. Um, right. And so is this an opportunity for more um, value um, based offerings at uh, regionals, at uh, nationals to start to uh, gain ascendancy because of the financial fragility of families across the country? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I tend to agree that this is a moment of, of potential, um, yeah. potential for a lot. of. I, I think the results of what we've had is sort of an educational experiment for the last year are probably not going to be that everybody thinks the same thing as a conclusion. So when I think about all these high schoolers doing distance learning, as someone who works at a residential liberal arts college, and I think that's a a wonderful model for many students, I hope some of the students will say, wow, I really took for granted the power of a personal instructional environment. And I think there might be some of that. But while they might be thinking that, we're still going to have to make a case. I mean, again, it's an open door, but we have to walk through it. On the other hand, we're going to have other students who experience online learning and say, you know, I never would have thought that this was for me, but it's actually not that bad. It actually allows me to do some other things with my life. And so there will be openings for institutions in that direction as well. And and along so many dimensions, we're in a moment of flux. So I think it does, it does offer because of the income effects of, of all of this, um, the chance that there might be, I mean, in essence, we have all been invited very brutally to re-envision what education looks like. And once you open that up, I think you could get a lot of people thinking, you know, okay, so what is the value of an elite education? Um, is it worth it? 
what are the costs and what are the benefits? And I think we were already seeing those conversations taking place. And when we see the Varsity Blues scandal, it's really a small number of schools, a small number of incidents. Yeah, it's all very salacious and some celebrities were involved. So I understand why people would, um, would read it like we read so much about celebrity. But it wasn't just that people were fascinated. People were angry. Mm-hmm. Um, and that the visceral nature of the response suggests to me that there is, you know, there's an undercurrent, a conversation going on beneath the surface about the value of elite education. Yes. And people are, are, are questioning that. And so, yeah, I do think there are, there's, you know, and this is, I think Carlton's going to be okay, but you know, I, I wish it weren't so, but I think some regionals will have an opening here to have those conversations that say, look, is it, is it really worth it? And from my perspective, what Carlton needs to do is better make the value proposition case. We, we yeah. can't just as well, of course they want us. Well, why of course? And right now a lot of people are asking a lot of questions and I hope that we can give good answers thinking, you know, we Carlton, um, but but we all have to, to be giving better answers to those questions. I think there are opportunities for some realignment here. I agree. And I think one of the challenges is that that value proposition has been pretty undifferentiated for most liberal arts colleges and universities over the last decade, right? So good faculty-student ratios, right. a caring faculty, a beautiful bucolic campus, um, lots of... Um, residential life aspects that are appealing, but I don't think that's going to be enough. Um, And so when I was talking about the academic program prioritization earlier, you know, one of the things that I am seeing is for the astute leaders that they are going back to the value proposition and understanding what their students and their specific student population values, but also what they're willing to pay for and what they can afford to pay for. Um, And so what I, and I would love to get your thoughts on this, what I would uh, think would happen if you look at other industries that have transformed under financial pressures is differentiation. So we've had a largely undifferentiated higher ed system. If this goes in the right way, institutions will start to differentiate around their student populations and their specific needs. Yeah, and I think, you know, when we were in this era where there are always more high school graduates each year, yeah. You could get kind of flabby on these kinds of questions, right? And so, you know, I think about the, the case that residential liberal arts colleges like mine make for the value of that education. It kind of boiled down to, well, you can have pizza with, with your professors. Right. I had a colleague who went on, on tours with his daughter and was just shocked to see that that was always the answer. Do you have good faculty-student relationships? Yes, I just had pizza at my professor's house. And he said he heard that whether it was a flagship public Right. or it was a private liberal arts college, which made him anxious because our answer, the private liberal arts college, was really weak. I mean, if if that's what we're trying to differentiate on, and we are, we better have a better answer than that. Right. So I, I think it will force us to be more deliberate about that. And it's not just about the messaging, it is about, you know, making good on that, truly being differentiated. That said, I think what we saw with Green Mountain underscores that, okay, it's not just enough to be differentiated. Right, uh, <laughs> right. Uh, they, they had a clear brand, but it ended up not being enough. That's right. Students need to want it. Right. <laughs> they need to be willing to pay for it, and they need to be able to afford it. Right. right. Yes, absolutely. Um, uh, one other aspect of the COVID uh, pandemic that I want to explore is this K-shaped recovery. Um, and so you see uh, students of color, you see minorities across the nation being hit the hardest. Um, and with the workforce becoming more remote, even on an ongoing basis, um, those are the the um, folks who actually don't have as much opportunity to do telework. So you really see this being exacerbated in the minority um, populations that are, um, in your projections, going to be um, a greater proportion of our students. Um, how do you see that flowing through, that financial fragility in the growing populations that we serve? And um, how should colleges and universities think about that? Yeah, well, I think, I think you're absolutely right that we should be worried, in part because of the data we've already seen, right? The National Clearinghouse data that suggested that uh, low-income students were especially likely not to enroll. That's right. Um, what we saw in two-year colleges, all these things speak to that, that yeah. issue that you're talking about. It seems like um, there are a number of students who probably felt like they needed not to go to college. And why was that? It's not because they were paying $75,000 a year in tuition. Probably they're contributing to the family's um, financial okay. picture. So going forward, I think we do have to worry about whether that is a short-term blip or is this start of a new trend. Um, 
I think you're also right that it, it does raise challenges because the growing pool that we're looking at is not the pool that has um, ex extensively deep pockets. Um, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic that the other part of the K, um, the rising state of those who have college degrees means that we'll have enough full pay students to make the whole enterprise work. And in addition, I think depending on the state you're in, um, the tuition assistance grants that states provide can still make low-income families well worth serving. So you know, I think in New Jersey, it's $19,000. Well, okay, that's worth going after. Okay. So I think it still works out, but that's predicated on states and, and federal um, funding remaining strong. And of course, every recession we've seen for the last 20 or 30 it's gone down. So, right. you know, okay, will it continue to be possible to serve those populations and make it work financially? Um, that's a bit of a frightening question in light of the deficits we're seeing. That's right. And and the community colleges, which you mentioned, um, were sort of the, the starkness of that decline this year was sort of a surprise because we've seen that segment actually be counter cyclical to the economy, um, and yet they suffered, suffered a dramatic enrollment decline. Um, and do you feel that that, I mean, I'd love for you to just sort of elaborate on what you think was behind that. Yeah, so I've got at least two thoughts, and I'm curious to mm -hmm. see how things play out. The one is the income story, that right. it's just, okay, contracting. But as you've pointed out, we've had contracting incomes in the past, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. that's not how it's played out. The other reality is that two-year colleges, um, a number of two-year colleges specialize in programs where it's more of a practicum experience and being in close physical proximity is absolutely essential. So at my institution right now, over 70% of our classes are online only. Mm -hmm. um, it may be that students view that as, um, you know, at the same time, my son in, in high school took welding this term. Um, you know, welding online is not <laughs> particularly rich learning experience. So, you know, if, if you're thinking about going to a two-year college to, you know, pursue a trade, uh, boy, this just doesn't seem like a great time to do it. So this is a weird recession yeah. because it's a pandemic recession. And so I'm wondering about these two stories. We've got the income effect, and then we've got the uh, importance of social distance. Um, and, you know, which of those two is the story? And maybe there's a third. I don't know. Right. And so I think on the, the income effect, there's probably a counter cyclicality until a certain chaos point right. where they, they just right. cannot afford education regardless, um, because to your point, they're contributing to the family and like they don't have, they just don't have the funds even for a very well-priced offering. Um, but you're right, I hadn't thought about the fact that the nature of um, the education may not be conducive to online compared to perhaps some of the other segments. That's interesting. I also wonder, I mean, those, even if you take the you know, the more traditional classroom offerings at two-year colleges, they often serve students who are more marginally attached to higher ed. Yeah. And so when you then say, oh, we're going to go online and there are all these other disamenities associated with doing, maybe that's just too much. I, I know I've heard yes. from some of my, um, my kids' friends that are in that marginal group that, you know, they just, you know, the notion of going to college is, is really underwhelming to them right now. And I wonder how much of that is because the distance modality just adds enough of a disincentive that, okay, if I'm on the margin, then I'm out. Right, that's right. Um, one of your premises uh, in terms of what drove the growth um, earlier um, was the earnings premium, right? So the fact that if you have a bachelor's degree um, that you are really earning significantly more uh, than those who don't. And yet I'm, I'm watching disruptors like Grow with Google um, and other non-degree-based credentials um, that may actually fill in um, that space between the, the BA and the no BA. And I'm wondering what you think about that um, and um, how that might impact the projections moving forward as well. I think that's a really interesting question because we have seen a movement toward corporate involvement in education. Yes. I mean, that in that case, it's a substitute. In other cases, we've seen corporate involvement where they go to a neighboring institution and say, we want to build a program within your institution that's tailored just for us. Um, I actually heard a story from a, a two-year college in Iowa where they've done exactly that. And, um, and from their perspective, it was very unfortunate because after they built this program for this um, institution, it was maybe five years in, uh, they were talking about revamping the program to even better match the industry needs. 
Hmm. And then the industry partner just hired the professor who was running the whole thing and said, well, why don't we just bring it in? Bring it inside. Interesting. So, you know, the institution felt like, gosh, we just invested a lot of money and time into this program. And now we've not only got nothing, it's worse than nothing. We've got a competitor, (laughs) um, you know, so it is dicey. I I am curious to see how the credentialing um, on the part of, it seems a little unfortunate to me. It seems like there really is something about teaching that is a craft and maybe the industry isn't recognizing that. Though in this case, they went and they hired somebody who knows that craft. Right. So maybe they can solve that. Um, But I've, I've heard some from a number of higher ed leaders who are saying, look, we either have to figure out how to play nicely with corporate America and be the solution to their problem. They need high skilled high skilled labor. Right. They don't necessarily need credentials, uh, meaning our BA or our associate's degree. They need people who can do the job. And if we can't figure out a way to partner, then we will be competitors. And so I think there is a real pressure to try to figure out how we can be the solution rather than be the competitor. Um, it's going to be hard for higher ed to release the concept of the degree, though, right? right? That is just so embedded in the psyche of, of higher ed. Um, you know, I think Grow with Google is interesting because it's free. Uh, right. It is targeted at diversifying their workforce. And they have a consortium of employers who will recognize the credential and hire right. folks who successfully complete that. That's pretty powerful. Yeah. Um, so if I were a higher ed leader on campus, I would be paying attention to these disruptors and, and thinking about our place in the ecosystem. We can also think of, of mimicking a little. So I was talking yeah. to... Um, Richard Wagner, who's the president of Dunwoody Institute in Minneapolis. So, you know, very much a technical college. And they're thinking about how do we revamp our programs to allow for that? So for instance, um, in CNC training, let's let's put the course that the students really want, the credential mm-hmm. you're doing on the front end. So that after one term, right. you have the credential so you yes. can go and, and get the raise or get the new job. Yes. While at the same time, that's the entry point for one of several of their associate's degree programs with the hope that, okay, now you're going to get the raise. That's what you want. That's what the industry wants. But now part time, let's continue pursuing the degree, which is sort of the more traditional product that that we offer. So I think if we can if we can be flexible in re-envisioning what our product is so that we can, in essence, try to have our cake and eat it too, offer the credentialing in the short term, we're just going to give you what you need and yet have that be an entryway to our traditional programs. That might be a way that's more comfortable for us. Now, I don't know if that's the right way, but it might be more comfortable to us. Yes, and I think it also is much more conducive to um, serving a a larger student population, including the adult learners who are gonna want that. It's actually a practice that we profile as well um, because adult learners are not gonna want to wait two years necessarily to get that promotion. Um, I also wanna touch on urban de-densification because I, I've been um, starting to delve into this, um, this area of really investigating the future of work as catalyzed by COVID. And a lot of companies are going to remote first or to more um, flexible telework policies. And so one of the outcomes of that could be uh, sort of flight from urban centers, uh, which has been the opposite trend to the right. last decade. And if this happens, which I think it will, I'm not sure to what extent, um, certainly has an impact on industry that is derivative of that, that serves those corporate centers, but it could also have an impact on the different segments that you talked about. So perhaps an opportunity for more of the rural um, based regional privates or publics. And what are your thoughts on, on that trend and how it might impact your projections? Yeah, so I think that's a really fascinating area just as a labor economist, right? So yeah. we've got this, this literature on, on um, urban, why, why do we have cities in economics? And the answer is usually it's because bumping into other smart people creates some wonderful economies. And so I want yes. to be near other smart people. Um, does Zoom solve that problem? I, I don't yet know. I mean, I think we were, we were anxious when we went to Zoom distance work that people would just, I don't know, watch cat videos at home and, and productivity would decline. And I think we've answered that question. That no, people do, um, they, they are able to stay on task. And when they aren't commuting and so on, we actually have a potential for an efficiency gain. Um, but does Zoom allow for the transmission of ideas that kind of lead cities to blossom? I think that one's 
still, you know, to be seen. And then the other factor is I think there's a great consumption value in cities. Um, and boy, don't I know this in a small town, the, the lack of great restaurant options, the, the lack of great arts options. Now I've got two colleges in towns and we, we, you know, we have some cultural amenities, but if you really want culture in Northfield, you have to drive to the Twin Cities, which thankfully is just 45 minutes away. But if you want to see the orchestra, if you want to see, um, you know, the art gallery, if you want to go to the theater, you're going to have to travel for that. And so while you could imagine a world where we do have more remote work and yet people still opt to live near the big city centers mm -hmm. because they just like the amenities that come with consumption of those things. Um, so I'm really curious. I mean, I, I'm kind of a small town person myself and I, um, you know, I walked through New York City when I, <laughs> when we travel um, back in the old days when we actually got on airplanes and I thought, why do people want to live here? Um, this is just so, so much concrete. But, you know, so, so will be, maybe people will, and, and some people will, I, I kind of, I'm, I'm going to bet that cities are still going to win out um, because I think there's still going to be a benefit for at least occasionally rubbing literal shoulders, not just zoom shoulders with other smart people. And I think there's the amenities, but I think it is an open question right now. And it's fascinating. I think what we're seeing, I, I recently moved to um, LA um, is that the cost of living in the cities versus the sort of the That's arbitrage true. that you can create if you have the same salary and you're, you know, living somewhere right. with a much lower cost of living. That is really a draw. So we've seen urban flight from LA to, you know, to Reno or to Idaho or to Wyoming, where people can get three times the amount of house for half the price. And that's pretty compelling, even without the amenities. It is. And it, but, you know, that's predicated then on I can keep, keep my wage up, which, you know, means right. I need the, the productivity. So can I, through Zoom, and then perhaps travel, right? I mean, um, I'm sure you get together with your colleagues infrequently during this pandemic, but it's not that you never have moments um, where you're face-to-face. -face. And once the pandemic is done, I'm sure that the work plan would be mostly remote and then, you know, with regular interactions. So yes. Can, can we maintain the high productivity that comes from cities, but now from a dispersed model? Um, it'll be curious to see. You know, and obviously, yes, it does. You know, I think the other, the other part of the equation for higher ed is there's where you live and there's where you study. And I think we've seen mm. a shift where it used to be viewed as sort of, you know, when I go to college, at least a significant subset wanted to then, I'm going to be off in sort of bucolic rural setting for my college years, and then I'll go back to the city to live. And I think we've seen a little bit of a shift of preferences where it's not clear to me that the, the rural setting is selling as well in the recent past. Right. Um, now, I don't know, maybe the pandemic will shift people's uh, affinity for urban settings such that students, whether they live in cities or not, will find the rural settings, you know, like my own to be appealing. Um, but I think certainly the pandemic offers lots of opportunities to disrupt these, um, these patterns. Um, and, and we're getting a taste of it. And one other aspect of sort of remote first for universities who um, maybe are embracing the online delivery, the online modality more, um, because they have faculty who have become um, um, converts. Uh, you know, I've had a couple of presidents say, this really opens up the labor market for me because I can find the best accounting professor no matter where they live. Right. Um, and it doesn't have to be in this town. Uh, and so my faculty may not realize this, but I now have access to a much broader labor pool than I did before. And that will be interesting as well. Yeah. And on the positive side, so, you know, from a faculty member, I hear that and they go, oh, no, you know, <laughs> increased competition. But on the positive side, it also means smaller institutions like Carleton, we have 2000 students mm -hmm. who might uh, identify a critical program where we don't have a critical mass, maybe yes. in Arabic. Yes. And in the past, we struggled with, you know, well, how could we partner with another institution to somehow pull off right. a create a position that you could actually fill. Right. Um, you know, and if we're thinking about in-person learning, which was our sort of default way of thinking, that's harder to answer. But if we move to online learning, all of a sudden, well, Carlton can partner with Williams or Amherst, right. whoever, it doesn't matter where. And maybe we can now come up with uh, more creative solutions to that, where we can actually create new positions that just weren't feasible that are, you know, really strategically important for the institution. And you, I am seeing consortia also pop up um, to address that, whether it's online or in person. So this recognition that, gosh, this business model really doesn't allow us to do everything we want to do. And we have to stop trying to be all things to all people. So right. uh, maybe through collaboration, particularly across liberal arts colleges. Um, 
equity. So uh, for so many re reasons, uh, diversity and equity have been top of mind um, for our partners and for us. And, um, you know, a lot of our um, partners, particularly, uh, but actually not just uh, highly selective colleges and universities have embraced this as um, really front and center um, to their uh, their strategies, um, the underrepresentation of non-Hispanic Black students uh, in particular, and have uh, created programs to increase diversity of their student populations. But your projections actually indicate that the number and share of non-Hispanic Blacks will decline at all institutions, including elites, um, while Asians and Hispanics represent most of the growth um, so what are your thoughts on how you would counsel these institutions? Yeah, so I'd start by going back and just reminding them, this is a projection based on past behaviors. Um, mm -hmm. It's not what has to happen. It's what we're on the path for. We and they continue doing the same things. So we, we certainly have seen um, a decline in the number of African-American babies along with other types as well. And that's part of this story. I don't know that higher ed can do anything about that. But when we think also about the college-going rates, we've seen since right. the financial crisis, the college-going rates among high school graduates who are African-American have declined. And that's really worrisome. Right. Um, I think we can look at the Hispanic subpopulation and see some reason for hope that, hey, right. things don't have to persist as they have. What had been an enormous gap um, turned into no gap at all in about 2016. Right. A small gap has reemerged. I don't know if that's for real or not. But the basic story is Hispanics have closed the gap. And my first thought was, well, Hispanics disproportionately attend two-year schools. Is this just kind of like a surge of two-year attendance? And the answer is no. The surge is four-year attendance, um, particularly among publics, but also among mm -hmm. privates, reminding us that what has been in the past does not have to be the same in the future. But, right, the big but is, what are we going to do differently in the future so that we get a different result? We can't just do the same thing and say, let's cross our fingers and I bet something new will result. Um, so I think we are going to have to talk about how we identify students um, who are, quote, our students, or how we define who our students are. Right. Um, we're having conversations nationwide about going test optional. Of course, COVID has, um, I think it was about half of four-year institutions were test optional before COVID, and now it's two-thirds. Um, so we're all getting a, a good taste of what does it look like when we force ourselves into maybe a more holistic view. At the same time, the College Board is trying to, with its, uh, I guess they call it landscape tool, to allow you to, if you want to use test scores, to at least provide uh, using basic public data, some context around it so that we can tell the difference between a student who scores a 1050 with all of the advantages of a very affluent community versus a student who scores a 1050 despite living in a high crime, low home ownership, low income type environment. And so I think those are um, really laudable um, initiatives the beta testers on the landscape tool um, reported that it did make a difference. So Florida State University, for instance, um, they primarily used it with admission to a competitive bridge program. Uh, this was in 2018. But they were so happy there that they then said, let's look at this stack of marginal probably no's and let's relook at the files of the students who had a lot of adversity. And okay. they found about 1,000, a little bit more than 1,000 additional admits, which led to 400 additional matriculations. And I think that's stunning just because it reminds us that however you do your admissions, you know, the bringing in the holistic element of admissions, they were reporting that they had initially thought that most of these students were probably no's. And then on, on, on reflection, when you bring in the context, they said, right. no, these students really do have what it takes. Right. So how can we rethink, you know, what strength looks like. And it's not just in the admissions side, it's then also in the classroom. I have to rethink what I'm doing in the classroom. Yes. Exactly. Reach new students, you bring in some, some new challenges. That's true. So maybe I need to think how I fill in, you know, they're, they're coming from different high schools that have different skill gaps. But it's not just that. They also bring different strengths. How can, if, if I just keep teaching the same way, I don't tap into those, those new assets in the classroom. So how can I change the way I teach so that what these students positively bring to the classroom really, you know, makes, makes all that they can be? So I, I think we do have to, if we're on autopilot, I guess my my projections say on autopilot, it doesn't go so well. If we're worried about equity, then we're going to actually have to change. We, we have to break the pattern. I think that's very astute. And I hope um, faculty think about it in that way. I was uh, speaking to the president of Hamlin, um, who um, harkened back to the first affirmative action 
um, sort of wave of students and um, said, you know, I don't want this to be like that because if we don't set these students up to succeed, it's not just about getting them in the door. If we don't set them up to succeed, they will then be blamed um, and be sort of the face of failure uh, right. for that set of students. And that's really a backlash that we need to to avoid. And the problem is K through 12 um, we're looking at 3 million students missing from the public school system, disproportionately students of color. So it also forces us to reconceive of what that concept of college readiness means, right? right. So, so um, perhaps that adversity adjustment is part of it, but it's also how can we be ready for those students because they are coming to us with very different levels of preparedness, at least yeah. from an academic standpoint. Exactly, and it's really tricky because on one hand, Okay, we need to have standards, whatever that means. But on the other hand, what is it we're trying to do? I presume um, higher ed sits kind of in the middle. As you right. point out, a lot of these problems are in K-12, and I can't solve those problems very directly. Mm -hmm. um, but K-12 is going to do whatever it's going to do. And then we have workforce needs on the other end. Yes. And higher ed sits in the middle. Yes. And we can say, well, those students don't have the skills that I'm willing to work with. We can do that, but then, okay, then we become a, a clog in the pipeline. Or we can say, okay, now where, where are you at? And I can be disappointed with the answer, but I can still say, okay, I'll engage with you where you are. And, and then my job is to take you to the next level. Um, you know, I don't quite know how to put those two, the, we need standards on one hand and we have to just, okay, this is the world we live in. If students aren't prepared for um, what they need to do with our current curriculum so that they can be skilled workers for the workforce needs that we have, then we do need to change our curriculum and it's a balancing act, right? I mean, I, I still need to get them to the same output end. So that's where the standards have to be held, but I need to be flexible about how we get them into the on-ramp to that higher degree that gets them to where they need to go. Yes, and that's gonna require quite a bit of transformation in the thinking uh, for, for some institutions, especially who see selectivity as a big part of their identity, right? right? Yeah. Um, Another example of that, by the way, is Morningside College in Iowa. Mm -hmm. um, because they're facing enrollment pressures, but, you know, let's just be honest. A lot of this is motivated by what's it going to take for us to continue as an institution. Right. And so they're looking at students who they describe as in the past students that they would have said, no, we're not interested. And reconsidering, and they've created a program where they give conditional admittance. Um, mm -hmm. Those students then take a, a slate of classes that are predetermined. Um, and success in the fall term then gets you unconditional admittance in the spring term. And so it's it's a, mm -hmm. a highly structured remediation program, in essence, to help bring these students from, no, we're not interested, to, yeah, but we could, you know, if, if we worked at it, we could get you up to speed. Um, now, during the fall, they don't allow the students to participate in sports or other talent groups. I mean, the point is, we're going to have to do some intensive work to close the gap so that hopefully by your first year spring term, you're then kind of up to speed with where you need to be. But it's a way of re-envisioning, okay, so is the message to you, why don't you go to some other institution? We don't know which one, you figure it out. Get yourself up to speed and then we will be willing to talk with you. Or do we say, tell you what, we will reconceive who we are and we will figure out what it's gonna take to help you to that point. Um, Hopefully they don't call it a remediation program because I think that you're sort of sending mixed signals. We, we want you, but you need remediation it can be, um, especially for, students coming with the idea that they don't belong anyway um, might be uh, a little bit of a, <laughs> of a mixed signal there. But yes, I love the idea that they are bringing in these students and helping them to become ready, right? And taking that extra step. I think that's absolutely right. Um, so speaking of big change, um, Biden, was uh, inaugurated yesterday, big day in the nation's capital. And he has some pretty significant um, legislation uh, that is under consideration uh, that could impact higher ed. Um, and I'd love for you to just uh, talk about how you think that might impact sort of the, the different paths that, um, that our institutions might see in front of them, whether it's doubling the Pell um, or even some of the legislation around um, for-profit and OPMs, um, trends with international impact of the free college programs. What are your thoughts on, on oh. Biden's potential impact? So I, I think it's too soon to say mm -hmm. at the institution level because all of these cut in very different ways. Yeah. So for instance, if you ask my institution, what do we think about doubling the Pell? We think that's terrific, right? Because 
we benefit from that one. Whereas what do we right. think about free college at the two-year institutions in Minnesota? Uh, you know, now we're worried that you're going to substitute. People mm-hmm. are going to go to two-year colleges where retention rates are lower rather than going to privates like Carleton where retention rates are higher. And we'll make the argument that, hey, that might not even pay off for the state as a whole. But obviously, right. we have a dog in that fight. Um, so I think it, a lot of it depends on the details. Um, yeah, I, I think the... We have finite resources. We're going to have to be really, really thoughtful about how we do this. So, for instance, I do get anxious when people talk about um, forgiveness of student loans because that is going to be so regressive on average, right? Mm-hmm. Most people who have student loans, regardless of if you say we're only going to pay off 10000 or 50000 but certainly if you say 50000 are people who have degrees and higher incomes. So um, there really is a challenge with student loans, especially among people who drop out and then right. have loans but no no ability to pay them. Um, but the crisis is more about an aligning of the payments with the income. Mm-hmm. And so I think just kind of these broad brush, let's just forgive student loans, will probably send a lot of money out the door, but it won't be very well targeted. And so I would prefer, and I think most economists would prefer something that was a little bit more targeted, maybe income-based forgiveness or income-based repayment. Um, interesting, the UK does income-based repayment just by default. Um, and here in the United States, it's very, very controversial because it's just not the way we've done things. But mm-hmm. it seems to solve a lot of the problems that, hey, if you have high income, yes, you will pay. But if you have low income, we're not going to put you in a spot where it becomes a hindrance to you know, starting a family, getting a home, getting on with your life. Mm-hmm. So I, I am anxious because a lot of these, have, these programs have big price tags that we'd be thoughtful. We've seen things in Tennessee, for instance, that suggests that the free college program does have substitution effects, that it does draw students out of the regional four years and private four years into the, the two-year. Two year. And mm-hmm. that's really, I don't know, is that what we intended? Maybe part of it is because, okay, somebody might argue that yes, but they, they did so with such a, a smaller financial expense. Um, and if they were succeeding in the two years and, and then they get back to that four-year degree they want, that's great. But we have to acknowledge that while 80% of two-year college enrollees think they want a four-year degree. Very few actually transfer. Yeah, yeah. Something like 20% by six years later. So I'm a little anxious about those kinds of programs that it mm-hmm. might actually backfire by drawing students away from high success areas to lower success areas. And I guess mm-hmm. if we do go down that route, then I'll be, you know, I'll be cheering on two-year schools. Let's hope that we can get student success rates up. Right. Because if we're drawing them into those two-year schools, let's hope we're doing it in a way that leads them to a successful outcome. Absolutely. Um, So let's talk about your advice. I I love that you take a case study approach um, and that you're very upfront about the fact that uh, each institution really does need to make its own way here, that you can't just wholesale say this is a strategy for everyone. But how would you... um, Council, let's start with regional privates, right? So that's where we're seeing our partners feel a ton of pain. Um, Many of them don't have the big endowments um, or even cash on hand that makes this look like a rosy picture moving forward. They've seen enrollments drop. Um, How would you counsel them? What would be the the key steps that you would um, tell a president to take? So one thing I would say right now you know, in this moment of the pandemic is that as painful as the pandemic is, and as much as I want to just flip the page and be done with it as soon as I can, we really need to resist that urge a bit and try to say before we flip that page, what can we leverage from this Mm -hmm. experience? Um, As you pointed out, we have transferred to, we've learned, we've we've gotten over a lot of the fixed costs of a lot of things involving technology and instruction. And whether you're going to create an online program, which may or may not be appropriate for the institution, or you're simply going to use the technologies that we've learned to provide a better experience for a residential in-person experience, mm-hmm. let us not forget to, you know, to write down what we learned, to, to figure out how we leverage those, those learning things for the future. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we see that in, in learning technology. We see that in the bureaucracy involved in impeding student progress. Um, why do forms have to be filled out in paper when you know, online existed for a little while now. And I still see right now at Carlton, we're kind of in a hybrid. We've got right. some things online. So students are petitioning for things and I just get an online form and that's pretty easy. And then we've got like a an overload form. I've had this happen a couple of times where it's a PDF form that I have to sign. And so it's like, okay, I got to print this thing out. By the time it's all yeah. done, I think this thing gets printed out right now four times because we got to get all these signatures. And so you got to print out the previous oh consent, sign, scan it in and send it off. It's like, okay, oh. 
for this, the poor student who's trying to track down and then God forbid a faculty member says, well, I don't know how to get my signature on that. I don't know what the student's supposed to do. We have to, we have to leverage what has just happened. So that'd be my first piece of advice. As painful mm-hmm. as it's been, let's try to take the learning that can be had. Mm-hmm. And the, the second is, um, you know, I think one way or another, we, we have to lead discussions that open things up. Um, you know, Joey King, who's president of Lyon College and has done some consulting, commented to me that there are a lot of institutions when you read their mission statement, they're really quite baggy. Um, you know, they, they don't have that many limitations, but when you talk to the campus and you say, okay, what's the essential core of, of this education? Boy, there's a long list of stuff that you can't touch, all these sacred cows. And his experience is that if, if we just allow that to persist, you kind of start with this, the conclusion, which is nothing new can happen or very little new. It's all, it's exactly. only modest tweaks. And somehow we have to get back to, wait a minute, what is our true mission? What is the, the very narrow essential core? And open up conversations to, to other things. You know, I, I know that can go, and it has gone recently, in directions of things like getting rid of tenure. As a faculty member, you won't be surprised. I, I'm highly suspect of whether that's a smart idea because I think the importance of shared governance is so real in, in the long-term health of an institution. Um, but maybe I'm just biased as a tenured faculty member. Um, You've so also seen faculty um, have votes of no confidence of provosts and presidents who are trying to move right. too quickly. So certainly... Yeah, we see in the data that that Mm -hmm. faculty are are less engaged with their institutions when their institutions are less engaged with them, right? If I have the security of tenure, I'm all in on our future. But if I don't, you know, it's just reasonable that I I engage in activities that build my my general human capital rather than the specific human capital for Mm -hmm. this this firm. So it is hard, but one way or another, we have to um, have these conversations that open up our, our self-definition, what does it mean to be our institution, so that we can think of things like you're suggesting about getting a, a narrower picture of our brand, a more specific value proposition, so that we can consider whether or not there are new ways of learning that we have in the past said, yeah, that we don't do that, or we don't interact with students. Um, you know, what do we do with online uh, credentialing, and, and how do we honor that with transfer or not? Mm-hmm. Maybe we need to reconsider a lot of these things so that we can broaden our, our student base of who we serve. But that starts with us having to be open-minded about who we are and, and who we'll be. What about regional publics? Because in, in some ways, regional privates, while they have been hit very hard, they are more nimble. Regional publics are often constrained by being part of a system or just having a lot less uh, latitude in terms of determining uh, future strategy. How would you counsel presidents and, and leadership teams at regional publics? Yeah, one of the things I've heard from regional public leaders is that they're at least initially um, less anxious about the budgetary fallout in mm-hmm. an immediate sense, because they often have funding formulas mm-hmm. that are pretty hard to change and kind of guarantee that they get their share. I worry, however, that we, we can't we can't lean on that. That may be true in the short run, but in the medium run, I'm sure legislatures are going to look at appropriations. Mm-hmm. And at some point, they aren't just going to say, we're going to change appropriations for the system. At some point, they're also going to start saying, I think, well, if, if you aren't teaching that many students, I'm sorry, but we're not going to continue to leave that formula untouched. So I think we have to, in the in the regional public's case, be cognizant that while we may have short-term security in, in some fixity of the funding schedule, um, we have to be aware that that's not a guarantee at very least. We have to be prepared for, yeah, okay, but what happens next? And so I, I, I guess my counsel to the regional publics would be just a recognition of what we've seen in the past recessions, which is, um, you know, the, the legislature doesn't want to make hard choices. So they, they look for where do we have other revenue streams? Mm-hmm. And then they cut there and say, you guys figure it out because you have another revenue stream. And then unfortunately, they off, often also say, and oh, by the way, our constituents hate it when you when you actually say, OK, you're with right, less right. funding, we will we will raise fees. And you're like, no, you can't do that. So, um, you know, I, I think between we a have rock to, and hard place. Right. And, and it is. Place. Yeah, but, yeah. but we can't we can't stick our head in the sand mm-hmm. and think that. Yeah, but maybe maybe these funding formulas will remain steady enough for us to. I think it calls into question the concept of a comprehensive, um, because again, sometimes the business model just doesn't go around the block, right? So, um, I've had regional public presidents say, "We know we're going to be smaller, 
We right. can choose what that smaller version of ourselves is, or we can let it happen to us, which is sort of the the war of attrition and trying to just save what we can, but letting it happen to us. And so they they are trying to exert more assertiveness in in, in their own destiny, but they are releasing this concept of being comprehensive. They just can't uh, do everything and do it well with that uh, funding formula um, that will, you know, inevitably decline. And related to that, I think comes the renewed focus on on student success that you know mm-hmm. that EAB pushes. I mean, the bottom line is, it does not look good for regional publics in terms of the size of the pool. Mm-hmm. But the other good news is the retention rates at regional publics have been so traditionally poor. Yes. That you have so much potential to make up for shrinking pools mm-hmm. if you can just even make modest headway. You know, if we could get rid of 25% of the attrition, right. well, when you're only retaining 60 or 70%, a, you know, a quarter, getting rid of a quarter of your attrition turns out to be an enormously helpful move. Um, so I see St. Cloud State University in my own state, for instance, it started a, a statistics course uh, where they were playing around um, with institutional data and you know, the, the students basically found what a lot of people in retention work have found, which is a sense of belonging turns out to be a pretty good predictor, especially of high performing students who nevertheless drop out. Um, from that, they then uh, refined it with some, you know, some work by the IRA office to say, okay, can we come up with a, a 10 question, just 10 items, multiple choice that they give to first year students, I think it's three weeks in. And they're able to identify, you know, those kids who have a B average or better, um, who nevertheless have a 20% chance of not coming back for the following spring term. Because well, they don't the feel like they belong. Exactly. They're just not yeah. feeling any connection. So the next problem that they're working on is, okay, if we can predict who's who's at risk here, can we now help faculty and staff know who those students are and try to figure out how can we rope them in in the remaining 11 or so weeks of that spring of the fall term mm-hmm. so that they rematriculate in the spring? And I, I think, you know, I think regional publics have unfortunately, a, a unique opportunity here with retention work because they have had lower success rates. And I, I know that, look, I mean, students at these institutions uh, are are often playing the game of the opportunity cost. And so, you know, what would I be doing if I weren't at school, contributing to the family through, through work and so on? It, it's not as if you can get to 100%. That can't be the goal. Um, but we certainly could do better than where we are. And even modest changes would help a ton. Agreed. And with the nationals, um, you were... Um, very clear that it really depends on what the elites do uh, with the increased demand. Like there could be a spillover effect. Um, what do you think is going to happen there? And how would you counsel some of the larger uh, institutions? Yeah, so I, I mean, so far, it seems like the Department of Justice and Harvard seem to be heading toward Harvard's got a fair amount of latitude. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll see. Um but so far, that's generally been, it seems like the courts have been reluctant to just flat out say you can't you can't consider race in any way, shape or form. Though I would point out, if you go back to Bollinger and Grutter, the when when Sandra O'Connor wrote her ruling that that was the majority ruling, it gave a window, um, an explicit window that we're getting close to. She said, OK, but surely we don't have to continue doing this forever. Maybe after 25 years, this could be done. Mm-hmm. And, you know, time passes by and all of a sudden you look at the calendar and you realize, oh, um, may, maybe the courts will change their minds about just how much we can do that. So I'm, I'm going to bet that we're still going to see that institutions are going to have um, explicit or implicit ways to shape their class mm-hmm. in ways that they want, which does mean then that those second, you know, those second tier institutions that often play in the same markets to some degree, there's an overlap right. there in the admissions pool, are going to have opportunities if they're willing to say, okay, um, if there are groups that are disadvantaged in the admissions process, relatively speaking, we will we will speak to them. Um, and, and how do we do that so that they feel like, um, you know, obviously the, the winners of the game have to make these groups feel like they are winners, right? I mean, no right. students don't want to say like, okay, so what you're proposing is that you can be my settle school. Um, but if institutions can come up with a way to create uh, senses of identity for these students um, that are really positive, they should be able to take advantage of that to some degree. Right. Yes, that was an interesting ruling. Um, <laughs> and so that the ethnic group that you're talking about are Asians, right? That are uh, with the, the DOJ ruling for, for exactly. Harvard. Are there other ethnic groups that large national institutions should be targeting as well? 
That's a good question. I mean, I think to some degree, you've got the marginal high income students, but I think everyone's already aware of that, right? Right, right. The, the students who are strong academically, but not quite that strong, and they can they can write the full freight are the ones that, that people in the top tier are looking at and saying, well, we'll take as many as we need, but then thank you, we're all full. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, I don't think there's any second tier school that that isn't interested in that student. And right. unfortunately, the competition with merit-based aid in those second tier schools means that while the family can pay, the family rarely does end up having to pay the full freight. So mm-hmm. it's um, they only get a, you know, a modest chunk of that. I think there's also, um, you know, the reality that with, uh, the tuition assistance grants from states, right. low-income students also provide an interesting opportunity. That's um, right. We know from the op- from from the the economics research that undermatching consistently occurs, especially with African American students. Um, you know, I read that literature with a little bit of skepticism. I mean, the definition of undermatch there is, hey, you could have gone to the top tier, but you didn't. Um, and usually those papers are written by people in the top tier. And I think, okay, we, we have to at some point open up the possibility that what these students are looking for isn't you. Their right. definition of the top tier is different. Um, so if I can be uh, a national institution that can you know, thoughtfully redefine myself in a way that, that is a You are what they want. That's right. Exactly. They want. Yeah. Exactly. But I think it's, it's got to be more than, yeah, yeah, we're willing to have you. Well, you know, good for you. But are you willing to be a different institution Right. To be the place where they don't feel like welcome guests, but rather where they feel like I belong. This yeah. this is home. Um, and that, that requires a little bit more on our part. That's interesting. That's very interesting. Nathan, thank you so much for the conversation. It was fascinating. Um, everyone, remember to order your books on Amazon, The Agile College. It came out last Tuesday. Um, it's available on Kindle or in hardback. Um, and uh, it's good reading. So thank you so much, Nathan. I really appreciate the conversation. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Join us next week when EAB's Kathy Dolly and Al Newell discuss findings from EAB's most recent parent communications survey. They'll also share better ways to engage today's parents in the college recruiting process. Until next week, Thanks for listening to Office Hours with EAB.